My name is Josh. Uh, I am better known as Megan's husband. A lot of you know Megan. She's um, leading with Monica out there, uh, the children's ministry. I'm even better known as Riley and Callie's dad, that's for sure, and I'm, uh, it's a blessing to be all those things. This morning, I do get to share with you guys about joy. And when Chris put it out there on the calendar and asked if I'd be willing to take one of the Advent topics, I scooped this one up right away. Uh, for a couple of reasons, mostly because the previous three times I've spoke with you guys, it's been about fasting and money and making sense of life as we age, and I needed a win, and I felt like joy would be a good place to start. And I truly do believe that those are good things to talk about, and we should talk about those things. I also truly believe that we're meant to live a life full of joy and enjoy the good gifts that our Creator has given to us. So, thankfully for me in my preparation, Chris did a phenomenal teaching on this on October 1st. It was part of the table series that he was doing, and it was called Jesus, the Life of the Party. It was the one where he went on the rant about the cell phones and not letting your news feed determine your emotional equilibrium, and we all applauded. It was great. I was right there applauding. And what you're about to hear is heavily influenced by that teaching. I would encourage you to go back and listen to that again. And I'm justifying uh, how heavily this is based on that teaching um, because I think it's good to review truth. And this truth, in particular for me, joy, I know would make a profound difference in my life if I could start applying it. As shocking as it is, I do not live in a constant state of blissful well-being. In fact, when I told my wife that I would be covering joy in today's teaching, she said, oh, good. She said, I don't know what you're going to say, but you need to hear it. (laughs) Not exactly an endorsement of my credentials. So all that to say, we are going to be reviewing joy together this morning. We're going to start with a very simple-ish definition of what joy is. And then we'll move into what God thinks of joy as it relates to his relationship with us. Then we'll see how we can incorporate joy practically as part of the will of God for our lives. And I just want to finish with the power that Christmas has to affect joy, not just in our lives, but in the world. So what is joy? I hesitate to start with a Webster's Dictionary definition, mostly because it feels a little corny, but... I think I'm going to start with this because I think it's a good launching pad for our discussion about what joy really is. Webster defines joy as a feeling of happiness or pleasure. If you were to ask me what joy is, I would have said it's not a feeling. It's much deeper than happiness. It's certainly not pleasure. I would argue, in fact, that much of our delusion in life is based on the fact that we confuse pleasure for joy. And in our country in particular, built around the pursuit of happiness, we pursue happiness at the expense of our relationship with the creator that's the source of all joy. But I wanted to know what the Bible had to say about joy. So all I did was I went on Bible Gateway, and I typed joy, search, and as you can imagine, many references came up. 
And as I was reading through those, a pattern hit me. So I wanted to pull a few of these verses out and just read through them very quickly and see if you pick up on a similar pattern. Esther 8, 16 to 17. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. Psalm 511, but let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Psalm 68.3, may the righteous be glad and rejoice before God. May they be happy and joyful. Isaiah 35.10, they will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. Jeremiah 31.13, then young women will dance and be glad. Young men and old as well. I will turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. Over and over again, we see the biblical authors at least associate joy with happiness and even pleasure, which I found surprising. But why should I find that so surprising? Why does it have to be happiness or holiness? Where is it found in the Bible that God desires anything but our deep and perfect and everlasting happiness? I believe that it's this misunderstanding of God that is at the root of every problem we have in this world. And if you have a hard time believing that, consider Adam and Eve. Scott discussed this last week. They believed a lie. They believed that God was holding them back from their true calling. They thought that they knew better than God what was good for them, what would bring them happiness. And today we sin because we believe that same lie about what will make us happy. Ignatius of Loyola defined sin as an unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. And that's the core of my message today. God wants you to be happy. A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, said, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I submit to you that we need to change the way we view God, especially if you are viewing him as a Zeus-like figure with a lightning bolt ready to strike when you mess up. If you're viewing Jesus as a grumpy rabbi who went around condemning people and asking for more from people, asking for people to just try a little bit harder, then I think you're getting it wrong. Jesus was God in the flesh, come down to earth to show us how to live. And here's another key to living a life that's filled by joy. Jesus was not just our answer to sin. He is our answer to a life well-lived. I think we focus so much of our attention on the end of Jesus' life, and rightfully so, on the cross, on the resurrection, on the sacrifice, and the atonement for sin. But I hope we don't focus on that at the expense of the life of Jesus. What does the Bible tell us about Jesus, and are we thinking of him correctly? Our picture of who Jesus is can be skewed by the religious overtones around the reading of the account of his life. 
I think we also become numb to it. We read the Bible in a very serious and somber way. And I think that it's good to have reverence for the Scripture, absolutely. But I would just ask that when you were reading the Gospel, that you read the account of Jesus' life with a fresh perspective. Remember, he was accused of being a drunkard and a glutton. He was, as Chris said, the life of the party. He's having breakfast on the beach, turning water into wine. There's constant joy and celebration around him. And I know this because everywhere Jesus went, he was healing people. You can bet that there was celebration and joy around Jesus. And also, Jesus had kids running around him everywhere. In fact, at one point, the disciples are shooing them away. And Jesus responds in Mark 10, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. My wife has many gifts. Those of you who know her know that she is the kindest and gentlest spirit on earth. Kids flock to her. She has an insight into a child's heart that they can somehow sense, and they love being around her. Kids love to be around people filled with joy. Kids do not hang around me very often. (laughs) Everywhere we go, there's a troop of kiddos hanging around Megan, not around me. Kids know when someone's joyful, and kids were hanging around Jesus. Jesus was the most joyful human in history, and it should be our goal to walk as he walked. But of course, the obvious problem with this is, in practical application, it's not always 73 and sunny. There are times of immense tragedy and sadness. And how is it possible to, as James 1 put it, count it all joy whenever you face trials of many kinds? To get there takes time, it takes trust, it takes commitment and discipline. It takes a whole lifetime, and I would argue that many never get there. And that quest is perhaps beyond the scope of this teaching. My goal this morning is to just give us a starting point for joy. If you've been around the church for any length of time, you're at least familiar with the idea or concept of the fruits of the Spirit, one of which is joy. And it was surprising to me to learn recently, um, revolutionary, I guess, and how I picture the fruits of the Spirit. They're not commands to just be more joyful. They're signposts to a life well lived and a good check for ourselves. Are we living a life that's producing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control? Are we living within the kingdom of God? Are you becoming a person of deep and profound contentment? Or are you allowing yourselves to believe a lie that's causing you to live with a constant irritation or leading you to drift farther away from relationships with other people and making it difficult to give and receive love? You are becoming someone. Who that is is going to be depending on the decisions that you make today. I worked in the hospital for six years, the six years prior to this one. I met a lot of elderly patients every day. And over time, I developed three categories for all of the elderly men that I met. My working theory is that there are three possible outcomes for me as I age. One of these is grumpy old man. This is stereotypic. Clint Eastwood, Gran Torino, get off my lawn kind of guy. The next one, in the hospital, they refer to this guy as D-O-M. This is dirty old man. Unfortunately, I don't need to give an explanation for this guy. And finally, there's cool old guy. This is a guy who allows himself to enjoy life as it's lived right now. He's not living with regrets or full of bitterness. 
He's not living in the past. He's a guy who can impart wisdom from his lifetime of experience. But he's also humble enough to take advice. And he's a guy who honors women of all ages. And at some point during the formation of these three categories, it hit me that as a boy, everyone wants to grow up to be the last guy. No one grows up wanting to be grumpy and upset all the time. The men who grow up to be dirty old man or grumpy old man, these guys made a lot of decisions to get them to that point. And these decisions were almost insidious in how minute they are. But over a lifetime, they lead you to a certain point. And cool old guy also made a lot of very small decisions that led him to the point where I can call him cool old guy. This is more of a geometry experiment, but look back over the last day of decisions, last week of decisions, month of decisions, year, decade, two decades of decisions, and, and kind of point out the decisions that you've been making and draw a line, extend that line the other way as far as it goes, and where does it end up? And if you don't like where it ends up, I would submit that you need to make some different decisions. They're going to get you going where you want to go. When I extend that line out, I don't see enough joy down the line for me. So now we come to the practical application, how to become more joyful. If you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians 4. <clears throat> this is a passage that's been referenced now in the first three Advent series. Chris talked about it in hope. Scott talked about it in peace. And I'm talking about it in joy. I would encourage you to mark this in your Bibles or copy it onto your phone, make a note of it. I'm just going to read through it, and then we're going to pull or like highlight four different points for how we can apply this scripture to our lives to become more joyful people. So Philippians 4, 4 to 8. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. So the first point I want to highlight is trust. Paul starts by telling us to lay down our worries. And that's the primary way we're going to lose anxiety. Once we realize that we're not in control of the outcome of our lives, we must trust that God is good and he has the final say in our lives. Otherwise, we end up putting trust in ourselves. And for me personally, and I think for many, you end up putting your trust in money. But if money is what's going to make us happier, more joyful people, then lotto winners should be the happiest people on earth. But somehow, unsurprisingly, study after study shows that after the initial high of winning millions of dollars, within months, lottery winners revert to their baseline level of joy or happiness, or even lower. To truly move the dial of joy, we have to trust that what God says about money is true. What God says about sex is true. Relationships is true. Prayer, fasting, Sabbath. What God says about all of those things is true. And we have to trust that. 
The second point is prayer. <clears throat> prayer is a discipline, and there's no doubt about that. This is not something that comes easily to us, particularly in our secular, postmodern, go, 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 constantly distracted, constantly entertained culture. It takes discipline to step away from that and take time each day to align your heart and mind with your creator. But I would submit that it's well worth doing, and that can lead to a life full of joy. The third point is thanksgiving. So Monica Striefler, on her Facebook page, for years has done days of gratitude. It's the best thing on the internet. Monica Striefler is also one of the most joy-filled people I know. And I'd be willing to bet if you take time to think about the people who are most full of joy in your life, you will see that they're also the people who are the most thankful. Taking time to be thankful is key to becoming more joyful. And the fourth point I want to review is controlling your thoughts. This is what Paul covers at the end of um, that passage we just read. You have very little control over your emotions day to day, but you do have control over your thoughts. And your thoughts become your emotions. They become your actions, they become your habits. And over a lifetime, these habits become your legacy. So choose your thoughts very carefully. I would encourage you all each day, preferably at the beginning of the day, to take time to just give your thought life up to God and allow him to control that. As we close, I just want to focus on the miracle of Christmas and its ability to change the world. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Luke 2, starting in verse 8. This passage was already read. I love to hear it from Pat today, and I'm very thankful that she read it from the KJV, because I've also chosen to read it from the KJV. I'm sure Linus has influenced our decision. <clears throat> it feels uh, wrong to read it any other way. Joy to the world is something that we hear again and again, and I don't want this miracle of heaven bending down and touching earth to ever be lost on us. It is the reason to have joy. Nearly all of human history had led up to that moment, and because of that, everything has changed. Just like we sang earlier today, there's hope for everyone. So, starting in verse 8, <clears throat> And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Scott also talked about this and the difference between vertical and horizontal peace. It can be overwhelming when you think about peace on earth because you look around and you think there's not peace on earth. There's a song, uh, I think it's called I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. There's a line in there that always stuck with me where the guy hears the song 
um, peace on earth, and in despair I hung my head, there is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song, peace on earth, goodwill to men. And there's something that's just overpowering about that. When you hear about the state of the world, um, things that are happening in the Middle East, in Ukraine, it can be overwhelming. We definitely live in a fallen world. And we don't have that horizontal peace, as Scott said. <clears throat> but I just want to end with an encouragement uh, about a Christmas story. Not a Christmas that I experienced, but when I heard about it, it gave me new respect for the Christmas season and the power that it carries to change the world. It was the Christmas of 1914. That's the first year of World War I. Due to the time and history in which this war occurred, it was particularly brutal. It was the meeting of ancient battlefield tactics and new war technology. So, at the beginning of the war, what's called the Battle of the Frontiers, men were marching in open fields shoulder to shoulder, getting mown down by machine guns. Generals didn't know how to handle this new technology. Shells were being thrown by the thousands per minute, and they didn't really know how to respond to that. So what happened was trench warfare. It's what World War I is most known for, and it was particularly brutal. <clears throat> Some of the worst human experiences that have ever happened happened on these battlefields and in these trenches. Between the two trenches was an open field called No Man's Land, there were accounts that if you would lift a finger above the level of your trench, that an enemy sniper would try to shoot at you. And they would constantly send men over the top, they called it, out into no man's land, and they would get hit by machine guns and shells. And it was difficult to get these men buried. So men would lay out there for months in all different stages of decay. Men who would die in the trenches were often buried at the bottom of the trench. <clears throat> and as time would go on, Parts of their bodies would stick up through the trench. There was rats crawling everywhere. This is to say nothing about the elements being out in the driving rain and the freezing cold. And many of the men who were fighting, they didn't have a rotation. They would be out there for months and years. <clears throat> they didn't know why they were fighting. They were simply put in a situation, in an existence that was created by the worst of our human condition. But I wanted to read a couple firsthand accounts the first is from a young German soldier. His name was Julius Kutchen. He was fighting opposite the French. Quote, Christmas in the trenches. It was bitterly cold. We had procured a pine tree, for there were no fir trees to be had. We had decorated the tree with candles and cookies. We had imitated the snow with wadding. Christmas trees were burning everywhere in the trenches, and at midnight, all the trees were lifted onto the parapet with their burning candles. And along the whole line, German soldiers began to sing Christmas songs in chorus. O thou blissful, O thou joyous, mercy bringing Christmas time. Hun <clears throat> Hundreds of men were singing the song in that fearful wood. Not a shot was fired. The French had ceased firing along the whole line. That night, I was with a company that was only five paces away from the enemy. The Christmas candles were burning brightly and were renewed again and again. For the first time, we heard no shots. From everywhere throughout the forest, one could hear powerful carols come floating over, peace on earth and such. The French left their trenches and stood on the parapets without any fear. There they stood, quite overpowered by emotion, and all of them with cap in hand. We too had issued from our trenches, 
We exchanged gifts with the French, chocolate, cigarettes, etc. They were all laughing, and so were we. Why, we did not know. Then everyone went back to his trench, and incessantly the carol resounded, ever more solemnly, ever more longingly, O thou blissful, end quote. The other account is from the British side, <clears throat> a private William Quinton. Quote, all around us lay about three inches of snow, a typical picture postcard Christmas. Things were very quiet. That peace and goodwill to all men feeling seemed to be in the air. We'd hear the Germans still strafing up Ypres way. But the next night, Christmas Eve, even up there was much quieter. Something up there in the direction of the German lines caused us to rub our eyes and look again. Here and there, showing just above the parapet, we could see very faintly what looked like very small colored lights. What was this? Was it some prearranged signal and the forerunner of an attack? Or was it to make us curious and thus expose ourselves to a sudden raking of machine gun fire? We were very suspicious. And we were discussing this strange move of the enemy when something even stranger happened. The Germans were actually singing. Not very loud, but there was no mistaking it. We began to get interested. The enemy, at least, were going to enjoy themselves as much as the circumstances would permit. Suddenly, across a snow-clad no-man's land, a strong, clear voice rang out, singing the opening lines of Annie Laurie. It was sung in perfect English, and we were spellbound. No other sound but this unknown singer's voice. To us, it seemed like the war had suddenly stopped. Stopped to listen to this song from one of the enemy. Not a sound from friend or foe. And as the last notes died away, a spontaneous outburst of clapping arose from our trenches. Encore, good old Fritz. As daylight crept in, we were surprised to see the Germans waist high out of their trenches, gazing across at us with impunity. Imagine the position. Whereas yesterday, the mere sight of a bit of field gray uniform would have caused a dozen British rifles to crack, here was the enemy, in full view of us, gazing serenely across no man's land at us. And we at him. To us in the front line, the whole world had changed. We could take stock of our surroundings at our leisure. At nine o'clock precisely, the German burying party climbed from the trenches, shovels and picks on their shoulders. They advanced about ten yards in our direction and waited expectantly. A word from our company officer and our party was soon out. The officers looked on, apparently conversing. The digging party soon lost interest in their task and before long were busy fraternizing. Cigarettes were being exchanged and they seemed to be enjoying themselves immensely. Needless to say, we in the trenches were soon out on top, sauntering about in the snow, but keeping this side of our wire entanglements. Likewise, the Germans for the whole of that day and for many days to come, friend and foe, mixed freely out on no man's land. Except for the fact that a few of the enemy could speak a little English, we found the language difficult difficulty a bar to conversation, but we made do with signs and gestures. I remember distinctly a German holding out an open box of chocolates for me to take one. The Germans wanted to play us a football match out on no man's land, but our officers would not allow it." End quote. <clears throat> there had been calls from the Pope and from suffragettes, pleas from across the world for a ceasefire, but those in command would not allow it. They believed that this would weaken the fighting spirit and morale of the men. But spontaneously, with no arrangement from leadership of any kind at any level, armies up and down the western front of Germany began to sing across no man's land. 
in a spontaneous outburst of hope and joy in the celebration of Christmas. As Bono said, joy is an act of defiance. And for a moment, the celebration of this event that the angels had told the shepherds about, of Emmanuel, God with us, broke through and defied the death and decay of World War I. These men who had been living in the trenches for months, seeing their friends blown up next to them, for a moment stopped and allowed Christmas to change everything. It went across enemy lines and defied the orders of generals and the will of the powers that be. And it did not stop the war. That is the reality of our fallen world. While Jesus was joy, he was also a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The Bible makes it clear that God is jealous and feels anger and even wrath. And this is because of sin. We are living in that fallen world, but Christmas is the purest act of love that has ever entered this world. And Christmas is so much more than Black Friday shopping and commercialism. It's bigger than presents and trees and Mariah Carey. Christmas changed everything. <clears throat> so no matter what craziness is going on in your life, before you allow yourself to walk out the door and get sucked back into the hustle and bustle of the season and of this day, I would encourage you to just let yourself rest let the joy of God catch you, as Beth told us. <clears throat> your kids are with some of the kindest and most joy-filled people back there. So put your mind at ease. And if you feel so led, just let yourself rest here for a moment. Uh, if the ministry team would come up. Christmas is celebrated on December 25th, just that one day. And I feel like we put a lot on that one day. I know that I do. <clears throat> I try to conjure up all the good feeling that I can and put as much into making that one day perfect as I possibly can. But the reality is that you can't force joy. Joy is the fruit of a life well lived. It takes one decision at a time, one thought at a time. And it begins by trusting that what God wants is only your deepest happiness. Father, thank you so much for Christmas. I just pray that the wonder and miracle of this season would never be lost on us. I pray that we would take this message of hope and joy and peace and love with us into our communities and our spheres of influence. Then we would carry it with us beyond December, beyond January, and we would take it with us all through the year. Just pray for a blessing over this congregation as they go out into the world and pray that your joy will go with them. In Jesus' name. Amen.